These are the dialogues of a peculiar character. My name is Thomas Gideon. Join me in chasing my peculiar passion for beer and brewing through conversations with the amazing and curious people who work in the beer industry. I look forward to sharing with you the fascinating stories about how and where beer is made and served, whether that is mere minutes or many hundreds of miles from my home. In the last episode with Jim of Seven Locks, we explored a compelling story of locality. You can't get much more local than a nano brewery. That is a brewery producing at a scale really only sufficient to serve their own tasting room or local needs. Tony at Saints Row is a perfect example of not just brewing at that scale to produce specifically for the demand right in front of him, but also with deep roots in the local community and a very strong intentionality around creating a place, a moment, an experience for people nearby to come to and enjoy that is as much about the beer as it is about the local fabric of the community in which his brewery is embedded. Saints Row is a brewery not five minutes from my house that opened not even two weeks ago. Very excited to be joined by Tony Perpula, the co-founder, the director of operations, and the brewer. Welcome, Tony. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Looking forward to talking with you and seeing what we got going on, man. Fantastic. Can you first tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so uh, I was born in D.C. I've lived in the Gaithersburg area about, you know, two and a half, three miles from here for almost my entire life. I went to the University of Maryland where I met my wife. Um, was there for four years, got married right after I graduated, moved to Greenbelt for about six months. And when I moved into that townhouse, just decided, you know, I need to pick something up as a hobby. We had no cable or internet and I was too cheap to, to get any. Uh, so I picked up home brewing and like a lot of other guys, it was a really slippery slope to being where we are now here today. Um, I'm just happy to kind of be back home where I'm from, growing up in the house that I lived in, you know, raising my daughter there and just, you know, tapping into this uh, community that I really have enjoyed living in for such a long time. So home brewing to pro brewing, what was that moment? What was your thought process? <laughs> um, I think it was, it was almost an immediate jump. I did one uh, extra, extract batch and it was fun, you know, luckily enough because it was the ease of it, it turned out, I guess, relatively fine. You know, we had... I was really anal about just making sure things were clean, of course, as all you know, homebrewers are told to do. And it was fun and I enjoyed it. And I told my wife, you know, this is something that I want to do for a living. Um, I didn't know how I'd get there at any point, but uh, long story short, I met with uh, Tom Flores up in Monocacy in Frederick just to ask him, you know, like how it is you, you break into the industry, what you got to do. And, and Tom sat down with me one afternoon. We talked about, you know, how he got to where he was. and. At the end of the conversation, it was really just about finding a way to, whether it is get your foot in the door, whether it be willing to, to clean or, you know, do festivals, helping out at local breweries and whatnot. Um, and so that's what eventually I wound up doing. Uh, I remember coming home from that meeting and telling my wife about my conversation with Tom. And, and I told her, kind of joking, it's like, I think I should just, you know, quit my job and, and go find a brewery to, to work for or to, you know, volunteer for. And expecting her to be like, what? That's crazy. Um, 
But oddly enough, she's like, okay, cool, let's do it. You know, let's figure out a way to make it happen. Um, and so this was at, you know, towards the end of 2011. And so I started looking, you know, reaching out to some breweries, seeing who had availability or who would be willing to take somebody on for free labor. And uh, worked, wound out that, you know, Union uh, Craft out in Baltimore was just opening up. And I sent them my resume and I went there and I met with them, talked with them. And I also applied for the American Brewers Guild, which is out of Middlebury, Vermont. And so I had been accepted to their internship-like program. And so the guys at Union were happy to bring me along and kind of, you know, have me cleaning and showing me, you know, the day-to-day -day operations, what those look like. And so over the course of six to nine months or so, um, you know, showing me, uh, like I said, day-to-day -day operations, cleaning, and then starting to do things more involved in the cellar uh, with, uh, you know, cleaning in place, tanks and whatnot, moving beer around. Um, so by the end of the time, by the end of my program with the American Brewers Guild, um, I had done a lot of the the day-to-day -day work at Union, and Kevin, the you know head brewer and director of operations out there, just you know started teaching me the whole the whole brewing process as far as you know on a commercial setup. And so by the end of my program, um, Union hired me as the the first brewer under Kevin, and so I was there from 2012 to 2015, and I loved it. They're great guys to work for, but. Uh, it's kind of time to come back home, and so here we are now in, in my home, Montgomery County, and kind of living the dream, so to speak. <laughs> what was that adjustment like going from home brewing? Sounds like you had a lot of enthusiasm. I think a lot of home brewers do, especially yeah. when they get bit by that bug and start kind of ramping up their home brewery. For you, what was that learning curve? Was it? Did you find it particularly difficult? Were there moments where... Um, it dampened your enthusiasm, or were you just like, go, go, go the whole way through? Right. I think for the most part, I, I tried to remain um, really open to the fact that, you know, I was doing a, a program where I was learning about the brewing process, um, the science behind it, um, but really the, the transition from being a home brewer to a, a professional brewer, so to speak, was one where I had to keep myself uh, just fully open to, I don't know everything. Um, and it's still something to this day that, you know, still a learning process. You know, you go and you meet with other brewers or even, um, you know, customers who may have insight that it, it's, you know, it's really easy to get blind to. And so um, I was really happy to just, you know, be like a sponge and really learn as much as I could through that whole process. Um, and taking what I learned essentially back home and trying to tinker with it in my own, you know, my, I was still home brewing while I was learning. Um, and so really just trying to apply that to what I was doing, you know, like, Demanding that I, we have quality control and just really trying to dial that all in um, and just being humble in that, you know, always can learn and not to not to think too much of yourself and be too proud to, to accept criticism for sure. So at Union, a head brewer like Kevin, I have to imagine they get approached a lot by people like you that for one reason or another, probably most likely a story very similar to yours getting bit by the brewing bug. What was the culture like? in terms of their reception to that. I think it's fantastic that you talk about sort of your mindset. What was their mindset like? How did they treat somebody coming over um, from amateur brewing into pro brewing, might have some knowledge, uh, but addressing that gulf between you know what you're able to do in your basement, or your kitchen, or out on your deck, or your garage, versus something that's a highly industrialized process? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, the, I think what really helped out was the fact, like I was saying, I was trying to be at all times, just remain super humble, you know. Um, so I, I didn't want to go in and, and say, you know, well, well, I am a home brewer. I mean, it's true, I was, and you know, I, of course, I shared that with them, but really explained to them that where I was coming from was a place of wanting to learn. And I think um, the guys out there at Union, I mean, they're super, super great guys, super fun to work with, 
And I think they really took well to the fact that I was willing to, to really just be open to learning whatever it is that they were willing to share with me. I think it helped out that obviously they were just opening up and so um, having somebody who was willing to do kind of some of the dirty work that, not that they wouldn't do it, but having somebody else there to help them out with it uh, was definitely helpful. But, you know, throughout the whole time that I was there, so, you know, end of 2011 to 2015, it really was just a, um, a learning experience. And I think that kind of helped um, make that transition for them, you know, bringing me into the fold and, and really teaching me. And I think that's kind of also just speaks to the culture around uh, brewing as well. You know, like, you know, beer is meant to be shared. Um, and so they really kind of embraced that and they, they brought me in and, you know, I think it was cool the way they did it. You know, they were willing to take a chance on me and like I'm ever, forever going to be grateful for that opportunity because I don't know that we would be here right now if I hadn't been given that chance. And it's all I owe that to him for a, for a long time for sure. Yeah. Do you think Kevin Blodger's own history, that's a head brewer at Union Craft that you worked under, uh, his history as a home brewer who himself turned pro made him more receptive or patient as a teacher? Uh, I, I mean, I guess it would help. I, and, you know, that was a subject that never really came up with um, my time working with Kevin. Um, I knew his history, you know, decided to pick it up whenever he was at Maryland. Um, but, you know, Kevin just had so much experience that whenever I, you know, I finally arrived at Union, um, I, I really thought nothing of it. You know, I was just, I just trying, like I said earlier, just really trying to be a sponge um, and humble myself to know, okay, yeah, I've done some stuff at home, but really it's, pales in comparison to like what world of knowledge there is to, to be gleaned from working with somebody like Kevin. So um, it was really something that never really seemed to have come up. Um, it was cool though, because whenever I was doing stuff, you know, as, as a home brewer at home, which I still was doing, um, Kevin would always be willing to kind of offer suggestions on things that I was trying to do, like finding ways to scale what we were doing at the brewery in terms of just like, you know, quality control and figure out a way to do that at home. He was really, um, receptive to giving me, you know, suggestions or things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it wouldn't hurt <laughs> for sure. Getting in at a brewery like Union that just seems to be doing really gangbusters right now. Uh, definitely a darling in the Baltimore beer scene. You can get your beer down this part of the state as well. Uh, getting in early on, having such a fantastic learning experience, why give that up? Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny because I left at the end of 2015 and so we were definitely growing the entire time I was there, but it's it's really interesting to see that after I left, really, it seems like things have taken off even more, you know? They got the new space they're going to be moving into um, and filling that out. Like, I went to visit them a couple of weeks ago, and just the space is packed. You know, you got no more space for, for any more tanks, like, and they've taken over some of the units next to them, and it's really grown, and I'm you know, happy to see that for them. But at the end of the day, the decision to kind of to leave Union was um, a real personal one. Um, my wife and I um, were trying to have a family for a long time uh, and we're having a hard time with it. And so it was affecting my ability to, I feel, really be able to be productive. Um, being away for so long, you know, by the time I left, we were triple batching every day um, between two brewers. So we'd split one and a half shifts each. And it was really affecting um, just, you know, my home life and whatnot. And so we decided, you know, maybe I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll leave in, at the end of 2015. Um, and I'd always known I wanted to open a brewery up. At the time, we didn't think that was where we were going to be headed. You know, I wound up working part-time at the school my wife teaches at, or works at, I should say. And it really wasn't until six months after I left that we decided, okay, you know, like, let's go ahead and let's do something about this. Let's see the feasibility of doing a small operation. 
um, for the sake of being able to just have it be family place. You know what I mean? A family run business uh, through and through. And so it really, at the end of the day, it was just a personal decision for our family life to kind of to leave what was a great spot with great people. Um, you know, I, I told my wife, like, I didn't want to look back, you know, five, six down, years down the road and, and wonder, you know, was, was all that time worth it? You know, like, we, we, you know, we wanted to have a family and figure that all out. And so it was just, it was just something we just decided uh, for the best of us to go ahead and just, you know, come back home, <laughs> so to speak. In your mind, what was that vision of Saints Row before it actually existed? What kind of drove or, or called you to create this space, right? You described as a, a family space. Yeah, um, I, I would think for sure everything that we've tried to accomplish here, or, you know, whether it be from the style we like to do, you know, the, the way we like to approach our recipes, or the atmosphere we like to create here, everything that I've done really has been influenced by my experience and time I spent in Baltimore. Um, you just see the people who come out to to the brewery, and it really is just a community spot. You know what I mean? And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to kind of capture that here. Um, this is my home. This is where I originally am from. I mean, I was, of course, born in D.C., but I've lived here for almost 30 years. Um, and I really feel like for a long time that the people from my own community, my neighborhood, you know, my neighbors, family, friends, people I grew up with for a long time have lost touch with just how much there is here in our home. And we just wanted to kind of create a space where people kind of reconnect with that and rediscover what it is that our home has to offer and our community really has going for it. And so that's why we wound up sizing the, the, the space like we do. Um, we're not a large brewery, you know, we have a two-barrel brew deck, uh, three three-barrel fermenters and a three-barrel bright. Um, but that's because we want to bring people here, you know, we're really trying to supply just for this community in this area. Uh, not really distribution, but kind of, you know, someone said once it's like a cheers kind of place. It's like, well, yeah, kind of, you know, that's kind of what we're going for. We just want people to have a spot to kind of come back home and, and enjoy what it is that, that we have whether that be working with, you know, other partners in the area. So, you know, with the coffee roaster down the road, Mayorga, or getting a couple of local artisans to come set up shops, you know, do pop-ups here and there, or do like a beer dinner in this area with a chef who's, you know, has a restaurant here. Um, different things like that. Just really trying to reconnect to people with, with you know, the industry and, and the businesses in their, in their home already. It feels like there's a particular moment around here, too, with... Denizens just having celebrated their third anniversary. Seven Locks, not too far from here, coming up on their second anniversary. And so many other breweries in the offing, or there are even ones further up county, lest I forget, Brookville, where Doc, I'm sure I'm going to forget. Uh, but just that worry about forgetting all the names of these breweries that are have just opened, are opening, or in the process of opening. Do you think that made it easier in some way for you to realize that vision, that it created more of a welcoming space than, say, a couple of years ago if you had tried to do this then? I guess so. I think, um, I mean, if you watch the way the county been, has been growing with as far as, you know, just alcohol production and just so breweries in general, um, we are kind of popping up. We, we know a couple of the guys from Waradaka and, and Brookville came by last week and we were just, you know, talking and chatting and figuring out. There's, so there's five of us in the county right now. Um, and by next year, hopefully it'll be eight. So there really is a movement to, to bring this all, you know, bring this all about. There's a lot of, I think the people in Montgomery County, like I said, for a long time, had to go out of county to get beer, you know what I mean? Um, to the Baltimore, to the Fredericks, to D.C., and even all the way out to Virginia. And I think now that there's finally something here for them, people are waking up to that and, and really excited to it and, you know, grasping onto that. And so, in a sense, that's definitely made it uh, easier for us um, in terms of just, 
the feasibility of being able to keep a space like this open because we've people are coming out you know people want to see people want to have a space that's their own um like i said I'm, I'm proud of where i'm from and i'm proud of this area and it's kind of fun to have the people of this area have a place that they're proud of as well like this is their spot you know um and so it's exciting to see what's going on i mean especially in the next year or so we'll see how that continues to grow there seems to be a more apparent DIY ethos to Saints Row. In particular, I noticed the very clever sort of home-built solution for dust abatement around your mill. Is that something that you think is distinctive to a brewery at this scale? Or was that something at a larger brewery like Union where you were also kind of bodging together what you needed to get the job done? Um, I think one of the reasons why we have a lot, we're doing a lot of stuff for ourselves, including, you know, like the grain mill, you know, dust control, things like that. Some of the furniture we have in here. Um, part of it is just practicality reasons. Like we could find a way to include an exhaust ventilation system and, you know, close off part of the space we have here for all our grain processing. Um, but at the same time, it'd, it'd be a little bit overkill. I mean, I'm only milling, you know, 100 plus pounds of grain at a time. And so to devote a lot of, you know, our resources to that um, in the front end just didn't seem like to make a lot of sense in the beginning. Um, it's also one of those things that I think, you know, having tried to scale down what I was doing when I was working in Baltimore for such a long time to my home brewing practices uh, was something that I really started to enjoy doing, whether it was, you know, like building a, a conical that had, you know, temperature control in my, in my basement to finally now, like, you know, like I said, like the ventilation for our grain processing. Uh, something that I find is a challenge and it's interesting ways to, to make it work, but also at the end of the day, it's also cheaper. You know, my wife and I, we, um, we are the owners of this company. We've taken very little um, outside investment, really, because we just wanted to build this up for ourselves. Uh, it's a project that we just wanted to be able to give to the community here. Um, and so one of the ways we've gone about doing that is just making sure that we're, wherever we can afford to um, do something for ourselves, we do. Um, but at the same time, things that we really can't afford to you know, cut corners, we haven't cut corners. So... You know, everything you know, in the cellar and the brewing end is all, you know, all stainless. Uh, we have a glycol chiller, so we're making sure we can control all the fermentation process. Um, because those are things that I just, I did not want to mess with. You know, that's, that touches the beer, like, we don't want to mess with that. So, but there definitely is a little bit of a, you know, interesting, rustic kind of feel of this place. <laughs> it's part of its charm, to be frank. Uh, I think it's part of what makes it so cozy. And I, I don't know the typical patron maybe feels quite that way as, as a fellow homebrewer who comes in and kind of recognizes some of those touches and maybe even sees like a kindred spirit in terms of the kinds of things that we come up with in terms of creative solutions and in our own home breweries. As a fellow home brewer, I want to switch tracks for a bit. Yeah. You mentioned how you think about recipe. So what inspires your recipe formation, Your the, the styles that you choose? You think made three really interesting bold choices for your your first beers, all light, uh, no two similar, uh, and also styles that often don't allow a lot of room for hiding flaws. Like you have to nail a golden ale, and you have to nail it well. Like if there's something in your technique, your approach, your handling of ingredients that's off, it's gonna show. Yeah, I think, um, so when we first decided what we wanted to put out to the public for our first round of batches, um, what we were hoping to open up mid to late July. <laughs> so we were trying to catch the tail end of summer there. Um, didn't wind up happening, but that's all right. Um, but we wanted stuff that was all going to be super approachable and, and drinkable. 
Um, being a new brewery around here, we, we definitely didn't want to be scaring anybody off. Um, so our approach has always been make sure that people are going to enjoy it. I'm sure there will come time where we can have a couple things that are a bit more complex and more robust, but really it's about creating a place where everyone's going to just be able to enjoy company and having a good time. Um, not to say that, you know, those complex beers don't have their place, but I really just wanted to create, you know, a, por a profile that is going to be super approachable to all sorts of people. Um, so like with our, with our sour, you know, we only soured it for 24 hours, so it's lightly acidic. Um, I like to refer to it a lot of times as our gateway sour, um, and it, it served its purpose. You know, the people who come in here expecting something really tart, people who really like sour beers, um, don't really like that, and that's okay with me. I mean, that wasn't the approach we were going for. We wanted it to really get the people who don't typically enjoy that, um, and it's worked out well for us so far. Um, and I think, but the biggest part of making sure we're we're treating the beer well and making sure we're putting out the best product. Again, it just comes back to the approach um, I learned while I was in Baltimore, you know? Like, at every turn, you really got to ensure that you're paying attention to the details. And that's what Kevin always told me, you know? It's the little details that at the end of the day are going to make a difference between a good batch and a bad batch. And, and because of the way we're sized, like, I can't afford to have a bad batch. Um, you know, I have one bad batch, and that sets me back a month. I mean, that's, you know, about two weeks in the fermenter, and then two weeks that I got to get another batch coming up behind it. And so I can't afford to have something go wrong like that. And so really it's just all the minor details and just demanding that at every turn we ensure quality um, at all costs. And so I think luckily enough, hopefully enough, that'll just ensure that people come to know that, you know, I'm just trying my best to put out good, clean, you know, beer. And uh, so far, you know, people have been enjoying it. So um, I think we're on to something right. <laughs> Some breweries that I've been to within the first week or two seem to shall we say, struggle a little bit with process or equipment or scale of ingredients, often it takes a batch or two for the flavor to really shine. You seem to have nailed it like straight out of the gate. What do you credit that to? Uh, a lot of it, I guess, is just luck. Um, luckily enough, I think because our approach, not to say other brewers obviously aren't concerned with just quality throughout, but really... And that was like hammered into me whenever I was working in Baltimore. Like it's really those little details. And I think because we've paid attention to all those finer details from starting as a five gallon brewer at home to eventually brewing on a 20 barrel system uh, to kind of coming back down, you know, brewing one and a half to two barrels at a time. Um, I think maybe I just had, I mean, I don't know, maybe I've had more experience with the smaller, smaller batch volume, you know what I mean? And um, I think maybe that's given me some some help and we've been able to dial things in. But a lot of it really, I think, just comes down to uh, to luck and just trusting that, you know, we believe in what we're doing and it's, it's turning out all right. Um, hopefully we can continue, you know, getting it right. So uh, we'll see what happens. Your first few beers, as you say, are very accessible. One of them really stood out in my mind, though, a Saison, not always a style that we think of as being perhaps super accessible. Early examples of, of the style made by American craft beer brewers perhaps were described as a little funkity fun or horse blankety. Yours, though, is, is smooth. It has a, a very distinctive estery sweetness, almost a bubblegum, candy-like flavor in the middle of the palate, and a little more complexity to it than that. What inspired that choice and kind of going into that recipe? Yeah, well, uh, I really wasn't in, very much into saisons when I first started, you know, enjoying craft beer here and there. But I remember one night uh, specifically, my wife and I, every Sunday night, we'd go out with my brothers to, you know, grab a drink. 
um, just so we can all catch up whenever we had busy schedules. And at one point, we went to um, there's a there's a bar close to here called Poorhouse. So in Montgomery County, Poorhouse, they have a pretty decent lineup of beers. And I tried Brooklyn Brewery's Sriracha Ace. Um, you know, Sriracha Ace is a, obviously the hot variety, and it really comes through on that beer. And it's just so distinct, um, and it just you know it melded really well with the yeast character that. It, I was just really taken by it. I was like, I want to do something like this. And so we went about trying to develop a recipe to not just kind of highlight the Nelson Salvin we use in the dry hopping, but really to kind of have it complement um, the clean, some of the spice or even like the clove-like characteristics that, you know, the yeast strain we were going to be going for or using. We didn't want either one of them to kind of overpower the other, but we wanted something that was just really super, um, again, approachable, but really also just clean and drinkable. And so I think that was kind of the, the motivation to, to brew something like the Hapastolic, which we put together. And um, it really was just because of that one night I had that Sriracha Ace, you know, from Brooklyn Brewery. It was just, it was really good. I enjoyed it. And, you know, for a long time I was really into the IPAs and, and whatever hoppy beer I can get my hands on. But after I had that, my, my palate kind of been opened up. And so um, it's, uh, it's been fun messing around with it. <laughs> it it's inter interesting that you talk about it interests me that you talk about uh, going from being more of a hop head to perhaps broadening your palate as one of your next beers was a Belgian IPA, which has a very similar distinctive sort of style. Is, is it the same yeast strain? Is it a, a similar treatment or a different treatment of that strain that brings that similar sort of flavor to the IPA as well? Well, really what it is is the during our brewing schedule, um, the yeast strain which we used in our Saison became, was going to be the next available one. So I wanted to do something with it um, so I wouldn't have to harvest it and put it down and try to rouse it back up at a later date. And so people had always been saying that they wanted us to, you know, first three beers in, people say, well, do you have an IPA on? And at the course at the time, we did not. Um, so what I wanted to do was to use the yeast, but really to get a, an IPA in the tanks. Um, so we decided to go ahead and go for a Belgian-style IPA. So what we did with the yeast was we really kind of tried to temper it a little bit more. So um, we fermented it slightly cooler than we did our Saison. Well, considerably cooler than our Saison. So you get some of the character coming through, but not enough that you don't get any of the hop character coming through. Um, and really, that's, you know, that was the approach to you know, reining in that, that character that we got in the Saison, but not letting it overpower on the next batch, for sure. The hop character you do get out of that also seems to be a bit distinctive. Uh, on the board, uh, I think I noticed one of the hops that you used was Huel Melon, and kind of like your choice of Nelson Savine in dry hopping the Hopostolic, the Saison, that just seems inspired to me in terms of how it complements and works with that yeast profile. Can you talk a bit about, about sort of that thought process on, on hops, which uh, often bring their own challenges and rewards in integrating into different kinds of beer? Yeah, for the longest time I was intimidated by all the different varieties that are out there and I'd spent you know so much time trying to read as a home brewer you just you read too much and you overthink everything um, but I think the reason I really want it so I don't I'm not sure which, which specifically which one you're talking about the the, the hopostolic or the uh, the Belgian IPA both of them, both of them okay um, really it was I wanted to find when we decided to build the recipe for the hopostolic uh, we wanted something that was like I said really refreshing and light and the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, we're thinking like the white wines, you know, like a champagne, something that has um, definitely an alcohol type flavor to it. There's um, some complexity, but it's really crisp drinking. And so whenever I started getting my hands on Nelson Salvin hops, I thought that that was just going to work really well. 
Um, the aromas are just, they're there and they're, I mean, they're fun to play with. And I think it's, it's interesting enough for a lot of people who haven't had it before that, you know, it opens up, but also I think it opens up people to, to hops that they're not typically going to want to drink or drink um, on the day to day. But for our Belgian IPA, um, because we did want some of the yeast character coming through um, and also wanted that to, to meld with the hops we were using, um, we went with Galaxy, which is a hop variety I used often when I was working in Baltimore, um, which I truly enjoyed. It's, it's very aromatic and it's um, fruity and it's fun to, to just get your head in there. But I wanted something that would also kind of balance it, which was a little more mild. Um, so we used the whole melon, you know, the German variety, because it does have a nice aroma, but it really is kind of tame. Um, really just, you know, like, like I describe it, I mean, it truly is like, you know, eating melon. So you have your really fruity, um, sweet type fruits like mangoes and pineapple and whatnot. But like the melon, when you eat a melon, it just really is kind of a rounded type flavor. And so I really appreciated the fact that in using that, we kind of got a more um, round, full type aroma that wasn't specifically one thing or another, you know. Um, and it also was a fun variety, which I hadn't gotten to use on a larger scale. So it's like, well, you know what, let's go for it. Let's see what fun we can have. Going from the size of a brewery like Union to a two-barrel brew deck, three-barrel fermenter, some bright tank, are there particular challenges that you had to overcome to achieve that quality? I think the biggest thing was just um, getting used to how a brew day would look. You know, the first brew day I had was about a 12-hour um, day. But that was just because, you know, really trying to make sure that we were dialing in everything as far as efficiencies, volumes, um, and then just the sheer fact that, you know, I don't have a grain paddle that to clear my grain out of the mash tun, you know what I mean? I have to manually remove it, and that's turning my entire kettle upside down and all that. Um, so I knew it was going to be an adjustment, um, but at the same time, you know, it, there are some things that are easier. Like, I only have to mill in 100 plus pounds of grain instead of, like, you know, 1,400, 1,500, whatever it is, you know? Um, so there, there are little, some things that are easier, some things that are a little more difficult. But I think it really was just that first week of brewing, just, you know, making sure we were dialing everything in. And so the first three batches we did were all two-barrel batches because I was just, you know, two barrels into the fermenter, just wanted to get them all in. Um, having dial in, dialed in our efficiencies and just what we can expect as far as loss and whatnot, uh, we're doubling into each barrel, or each fermenter now, so one-and-a-half-barrel batches, double in to fill them up. And so it's... It's been a, an, you know, adjusting here and there, but I think we're, you know, we're finally catching our stride. Um, having only been opened for about two weeks now, we're getting our feet under us, and so things are coming together. Um, this will be a busy weekend, though, because we sent our kettles out uh, last week to get some modifications done, like I said, to make things easier. So we're having a four-inch port added on our mash tun to make grain out a little bit easier, um, and things like that. So those will be coming back Saturday, so during... Uh, Saturday taproom hours, I'll probably be in the back um, brewing and sweating and whatnot. That first brew day was 12 hours. What's a brew day like now? And how much uh, time, how long ago was that? So how much do you yeah, feel like Yeah, so brew? that was about a month and a half ago was our first brew day. And uh, it was on our Saison. And now I've gotten brew days down to maybe about seven hours, um, you know, with, you know, cleanup and all that. On your board, there are a couple of things that I found very interesting when I first came in your opening week. Um, the first was just that the upcoming beers uh, really seemed to span quite an impressive range. So going from those more summer beers that you had hoped to launch with sooner into you've got an ESB coming up, 
you've got some other dark beers, uh, Marzen. Um, what ties that together for you in your mind in terms of, of putting that slate, that rotation, that tap rotation together? Yeah, well, so the first three we came out with were our, so like, you know, wheat ale, we soured for 24 hours. We did our dry hop saison and we did a standard American style gold. Um, wanted to be really approachable, but after we got people coming through here, we started getting feedback of what it is that people around here want to drink, you know? Um, and so after those first three batches, I really didn't know what we were going to be brewing. And it wasn't until we started getting some feedback that some people were like, you know, well, I like something that's a little maltier. And everyone, <laughs> everyone sees our, we, the fact that we have cold brew coffee on nitro and they think it's a, you know, a coffee beer. I'm like, well, no, it's not a coffee beer. It's actual coffee. Um, so we decided that um, we're going to replace our co cold brew coffee line with an actual coffee stout because that's what people seem to be wanting. Um, but I also wanted to kind of keep things um, different than you would traditionally find. You know, so we, we are doing an ESB, which is going to be coming out. Um, you know, a really approachable beer again. You know, that people hear you know an English bitter and they think it's going to be super bitter, but you know, it's really not. Um, our English brown, just something again that a lot of people have been wanting, something that's a little maltier. So we're going to be bringing that out. We did a Belgian-style IPA, which, you know, we harvested the same yeast from our Saison, and we just, you know, we kind of tempered it a little bit, so it wasn't as punchy as the Saison was, um, really to address the fact that all people wanted IPAs as well, but I wanted to do something that was a little more fun with it. So we're really open to doing what it is people around here want to drink. Like I said, we're not distributing, like I don't have accounts I have to worry about sending beer to. It's really the folks that are coming in that are dictating what it is we're going to be brewing. Um, that being said, I, of course, have ideas in the back of my head of things that I want to see get done. Um, so because we went through our gold nail so quickly, like I, I figured we may as well go ahead and put it back on. Like People are drinking it, you know what I mean? So we're definitely going to go ahead and brew that again this coming week just because we're on our last keg of it. So if it's doing well, we're going to do it again. So it seems like versus a larger brewery that might dedicate some of its tap space to flagship beers. You know, everybody talks about flagship beers. You go to Seven Locks, it's Surrender Dorothy. You go to Denison's, it's Southside, or it's maybe Lois Lord or, or uh, the Red Ale, Big Norm. Um, sounds like you have a, a more fluid approach, so you feel like you have that direct feedback. Is that something that, that you anticipated, or is it just something that kind of surprised you and you leaned into it? I think going into it, we had anticipated, just because of the way we're set up, we knew that our approach was going to be pretty fluid, you know? We were going to be pretty flexible in terms of what we're going to be brewing. Um, but at the same time, I have ideas of what I'd like to do seasonally, you know? So whether it be every fall, every winter, things that I'd like to do. Um, but it hasn't surprised us so much. I mean, we, we figured because we, we do want to create a community brewery that really the community is going to be dictating what it is that we're brewing, you know? Speaking of community, we've got some guests coming in in the other part of the bay here. So if you if we pick up some background noise, it's just people setting up for a ping pong tournament. Uh, I want to shift over a little bit more to uh, the future. What do you think that that holds? What What would you like to see? You hinted at a few things, perhaps a bit more seasonality as you, you get some more time. Uh, yeah. Your belt. So obviously we'd like to continue to grow slightly. I mean, we've sized this place appropriate. We feel appropriately that if we're hitting the marks that we've been hitting the last two weeks, um, we should be good as far as just sheer volume that we're putting out. Um, but eventually we do have the space to grow here. I mean, we're a 3,000 square foot facility, but only about 1,200 to 1,500 of that is actually production space and taproom space. So we got the space to grow, expand. Um, 
we want to use some of the space for events. You know, like I was saying, like get a chef in here to do a one night, you know, beer dinner. Um, we're going to do some barrel program and we have space for barrel, barrel aging and whatnot. And um, which is also the space that eventually will upgrade from the two barrel brew deck um, to a three and a half barrel system and then probably adding a seven barrel from Manor and Bright. Um, just for the sake of, you know, eventually we'd like to get some product out. So that may look like, you know, a seven barrel batch. We'll split it half here and half we'll send out. And I, mean, I don't know what, what it'll be, but we, we have the benefit of the county allows us to self-distribute. So I could go directly to a liquor store or to a restaurant or a bar um, and sell directly to them and really be able to offer them savings as far as, you know, a, a per keg pricing and whatnot. Um, but we also did just two weeks ago, right as we, I mean, the first Monday we opened up, we purchased a uh, single head can seamer. So we'll do really small batches of four pack, 12 ounce cans, just because um, it's cool. You know what I mean? It's cool to have something in product, uh, something packaged like that. Um, it'll help raise brand awareness as far as getting a few of those out there, whether it be in the hands of the people who already come here, you know, going to share it with their friends, or just getting, you know, a couple of the local really nice mom and pop liquor stores to, to do something with our with our product. Um, so we, we, you know, there are ideas of what we'd like the future to look like. Um, right now, we're still kind of caught up in the whirlwind of being newly open and the excitement people have around the spot. So uh, we'll see how those actually fall into place once the dust settles for sure. That's fantastic. I especially love that you're getting the seamer. It makes me think of the, the envy that I had um, years ago um, as a craft beer enthusiast with friends out in Colorado, San Diego, where even larger breweries would do one-offs. Or, or even if you get up to, to like Delaware, Dogfish Head, you follow their social media at all. Uh, and you see that there are pub-only releases that you have to be there in the place. You have to really be much more plugged into the community. It's fantastic to hear that that's a strong part of your story and that focus is about perhaps you're going to distribute around, but it will be locally, it'll be more driven by this space than just distribution for distribution's sake. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's exciting times here. And I mean, it's like I said, this is where I grew up. And so these are the people I grew up with, the families that I've known growing up. And so just to see their excitement and being able to share and what has been a dream of me and my wife's for, you know, six years now. Um, it's kind of uh, exciting and just, I don't know what the word is, um, justifying, you know what I mean? We took it, we took a big, big leap of faith. What was it, you know, back in 2011, 2012 for me to leave my job and to see people finally coming in. Um, it's not just something that the numbers, you know, real, within the numbers, you know, we know it should work hypothetically, but it's actually working. So it's uh, a bit of a relief for sure. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like people to know about Saints Row in particular that we haven't talked about? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, um, we're just excited to share it with them. You know, we, we know that because the county has so many fun new breweries that are just opening or, you know, haven't been opened up or newly opening up, um, we know we, we're, you know, we're a small guy, but, you know, we kind of know where our place is and we're trying to do our best to remain humble and just be thankful for, um, the patronage that we're getting and just for the people who have been with us along the way and the people who are going to join us, you know, down the road. And so we just hope to have anybody who wants to come on in, come on in, you know, chat with us. We're, we're more than happy to just hang out. <laughs> well, it's a fantastic space. I'm sitting in this sort of rustic DIY, uh, furniture, furnishings made out of, uh, Recycled pallets and grain bags, fantastic. Uh, really great vibe that you have here, Tony. Thanks, thanks, thanks so for much. joining me. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. 
in the next dialogue of a peculiar character. We are the brewery that nobody has ever heard of. Um, and I think one of the biggest reasons for that is that we don't have packaged beer on the market. That's all gonna change here coming up on the 19th. Cans of St. Michael's Ale and Situation Critical are gonna make it out there. Um, so uh, hopefully that will increase our brand awareness out in the market. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to feedback at peculiarcharacter.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please help spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Please consider supporting the show financially by visiting patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash peculiarcharacter and become a backer. Patrons enjoy special behind-the-scenes access and bonus content. The support of my patrons is greatly appreciated. Until next time, chase what calls you. I would like to thank the Internet Archive for media hosting and bandwidth. The views expressed on this program are my own and where applicable those of my guests and in no way reflect those of my employer or anyone else. This show is produced from 100% recycled bits. Except where noted, permission to recycle those further is granted under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. That means you're free to change this show as much as you like as long as you don't alter credits and you share your changes under the same license. Theme music is Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.